So with that, tonight we are coming back to 2 Kings, and uh, we're in chapter 16, and I'm embarrassed to say that I had trouble remembering where we left off. Uh, Maybe some of you are thinking we already studied this, and if we did, uh, sorry, but I think this is where we are, and uh, it's an important chapter, uh, because here, at this point, uh, we've been learning about the fall or the sins of the kings of Israel in the uh, north, the ten northern tribes. And in chapter 15, I know you won't remember, uh, likely, but we were learning that in the north, in Israel in the north, because of their uh, sin and their rebellion, they were just imploding. And they were having one king assassinated after another, and it was just political chaos. And they, at this time, it's around 735 uh, B.C., They're only years away from Assyria coming in and demolishing them. So now the scene shifts from Israel in the north to Judah in the south. And we haven't heard a lot about Judah except uh, Uzziah or Azariah, Uzziah. That's that same Uzziah that when Isaiah 6, when uh, the text says in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So we're in that same period of time. Isaiah is a prophet at this time, and uh, we're in Judah in the kingdom of the south. Some important lessons for us to learn here from chapter 16. This is God's word. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of Yahweh his God, as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had dispossessed from before the sons of Israel. He also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, restored Elath for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath and have lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a gift to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and seized it and took the people of it away into exile to Kir and put Rezin to death. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, the likeness of the altar and its pattern, according to all its workmanship. So Uriah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah, the priest, made it before the coming of the king of Ahaz, of King Ahaz from Damascus. 
So the king came from Damascus and the king saw the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and made offerings on it and offered his burnt offerings and his meal offerings up in smoke and poured his drink offering and splashed the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Now as for the bronze altar, which was before Yahweh, he drew it away from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of Yahweh, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar offer up in smoke the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering and of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offerings and splash on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Then King Ahaz, so, sorry, rather, so Uriah the priest did to, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the laver from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone and the covered way for the Sabbath which he had built in the house and the outer entry of the king he removed from the house of Yahweh because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, became king in his place. Amen. This is God's word. Well, we are discouraged to learn that uh, now in the, among the kings of the southern nation of Judah, there's a king now acting like uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, or the kings of Israel in the north. Usually, we've been used to by now in Second Kings, uh, uh, hearing something like you know uh, the, the, about the kings of Israel in the north, and and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and we've had a pretty good record of kings of Judah in the south doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the high places were not removed, and the high places that's where the people were going up. Uh, to worship God. You know, it was user-friendly worship. It just, it just worked more for the average Judean to go up to the high places instead of all that trouble of getting the family together and going to Jerusalem. Uh, nothing's new under the sun. So, uh, but we're used to the kings of Judah at least having a little bit better record. But now we come to this King Ahaz and we're starting to learn, oh no, uh, Judah in the south is following in the ways of Israel in the north. So uh, this Pekah, the son of Ramalia, is, uh, is uh, king of, uh, in the north, and he is uh, aligned with Rezin, king of Aram. Um, the Arameans up in the area that you're hearing about, uh, you're, hearing, uh, you're hearing the region that uh, Hezbollah is from, uh, Lebanon. That's where uh, Aram and... Uh, Damascus, that's the area. It's, it's the same, same old pattern. Uh, enemies in the north, enemies to the south, enemies all around. So uh, Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, um, they are ruling and they're important because when Ahaz becomes comes king, um, he is going to face these, these men as enemies. And the reason for that is because, unlike his fathers, verse 2, 
he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father has done. But he walked, verse 3, in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's a sad line. Uh, it doesn't say that he walked, in, firstly, in the, in the line of the kings of the pagans. It's a sad testimony to Israel in the north's departure that Ahaz is described as walking in their wicked ways. But verse 3, in most uh, alarming and, and most uh, tragically, he even made his sons pass through the fire. Uh, this was a common practice to offer up uh, little ones to uh, certain deities as a means of somehow gaining favor. And we moderns tend to look back on such things as barbaric practice, but we surpass Ahaz here in the United States, at least with abortion, uh, many, many, many hundreds of thousands fold, all out of our nation's uh, so-called love of sexual freedom. And uh, so we are in no place to judge these uh, ancient wicked kings who offered up their sons to Moloch. Uh, So this is a sad thing that uh, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and he even did, verse 3, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had dispossessed. That's a, that's a, that's a wake-up call. Because why did God dispossess those nations? Because they were wicked. And their evil, generation after generation after generation, was building up. And finally, what God did, he brought his people Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, not merely because God had promised the land, but also as a form of judgment, a form of judgment upon the Canaanites, the original inhabitants. So you get a little heads up here, a wake up call, a knock on the door from God saying, heads up, what happened to the Canaanites is going to happen to Judah. You do what the world does, you follow the world's success rate. Um, It's a warning sign. Um, Don't get nervous about, uh, in a way, about all the, the liberal churches that we See, and I say, when I mean liberal, I mean like when you see a rainbow flag. How, how, and here in New England, we see that so often. Other people come from other parts of the world or the country, they're shocked. They see rainbow flags in the front of churches in the name of Christ with a cross on top. But uh, do not fear, those churches will not succeed. In fact, they're already dying. Um, you can't name one single church of that kind in New England where you've heard of thriving and uh, thousands of people flocking to hear the preacher share her poem. Uh, it, it's not happening. And those churches will go the way of the world. God will close them. So uh, God is bringing, going to bring judgment on Judah because of Ahaz's sins and the sins of the people. And uh, notice verse 4, a little distinction. Rather than only the people sacrificing and burning incense on the high places, now it's the king who's doing it. Again, previous kings of Judah, by and large, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and the people were the ones still worshiping in the high places, which was a, uh, off limits according to the law of God. This is not neutral. This is disobedience. But now it's not just the people, it's the king himself. And so that is an indication of Ahaz's thorough apostasy and turning from 
the one and true living God. So what happens when Ahaz gets in trouble? Verse 5, um, Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, these two enemies of Judah, came to, that, to Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz. Now, they, they couldn't overcome him. Uh, they come up, and, and uh, they're surrounding the city, and this would have been terrifying. Um, you have no access to the outside world, and you're dependent on whatever food and water you have, but you know and hear of what happens to cities where people are besieged, and it's pretty ugly and nasty thing. Um, it's a sad thing. And so he is desperate. And who does he call upon? Um, he, we're going to learn in verse 7. But notice that the, God's judgment is on several fronts. Uh, Jerusalem is being besieged. Uh, Judah is also losing access to the uh, port of uh, Eleth uh, down in the south. They're one of their access to the Red Sea. And the Arameans are, they clear out the Judeans out of there. So God is chipping away, not only at Israel in the north, but at Judah in the south. So what does Ahaz do? He falls on his face before Yahweh, the God of Israel, and repents and says, oh Lord, help us. No. He writes a letter to Tigger. You know who Tigger is, right? Uh, yeah, not, not that Tigger I'm talking about, but this Tigger is, is one bad fellow. His name's Tiglath, verse 7, Pelazer, king of Assyria. Uh, we certainly know about him from uh, ancient archaeology. He's attested to in uh, archaeological finds and so forth. And notice what he says to, to Tigger. He says, King Tigger, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel uh, who are rising up against me. Ahaz doesn't stop and think, you know what, maybe I should call upon God. Now, uh, before we jump on Ahaz and be critical, uh, we have to do a little self-examination, both individually and as Christian people and as Christ's church. Uh, how often are we tempted when we are in a tough place to immediately go to resources that we can see or hear or touch rather than the living God? And that is our tendency, shamefully so. And uh, we don't want to do that. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis is an Old Testament Bible con commentator that uh, uh, many in our church have grown to love. And we've used some of his resources over the years. And uh, he, he's very insightful, very accurate. I commend to you all of his commentaries on this section of the Old Testament. But he says, he says uh, here he says, Ahaz's has, uh, request to Tiglath Pileser is uh, he could have put, says Dale Ralph Davis, uh, he, Ahaz could have put his attitude to song or in verse. Uh, to the tune of, my Jesus, I love thee. My tig, I bribe thee, you know I'm your man. For thee, Yahweh's promises I view as mere sand. You're my, you mighty oppressor, my Savior art thou. Singing to Tig. If ever I needed you, dear Tiglith, tis now. That's pretty good. And uh, that's what he's doing. 
But, oh, I, I, I liked that, and then I thought, oh, no, what could I replace with Tiglath in that? And it would be my attitude sometimes. Money, health, uh, certain set of circumstances in life. Mm, I know. Uh, I know too well the temptation, and I'm sure you do as well, to not trust in the living God. Um, <laughs> husband, sometimes we... <laughs> We are our poor wives. Sometimes we expect them to help us and we go to them first before we go to the Lord in prayer. I'm guilty of that. So Ahaz goes to Tigger and uh, Tigger is rather pleased, uh, but he has to be bought first. So Ahaz takes all the silver and gold that's found in the house. Uh, he's willing to barter the worship of God uh, for help from Tigger, the Assyrian. And so uh, money talks. And verse 9, the king of Assyria listened to Ahaz. Oh, he doesn't care about Ahaz. And none of the uh, people, uh, well, I should be careful there because our wives care for us. So I was, the, the other resources that we may look to in times of trouble, uh, the, the money that we look to or the, the health or the, the physicians and so forth, they don't really know us. They don't really care for us. And just like uh, Tigger didn't really care about Ahaz. He's just another little puny king in another little backwater um, little county in his mind. And so he listens to him and the king of Syria goes up against Damascus that's up in Syria that's uh, uh, Assad at the present day, and uh, that's Hezbollah and ISIS territory kind of up there. Uh, the Russians are having fun up there right now, too, and uh, it's, it's a mess. But he sees, he goes up there, and he removes uh, the uh, Syrian problem uh, of the Arameans, and he takes care of that. And uh, as, a, as a thank you trip, Ahaz, king of Judah, goes up to Damascus, the capital of Syria, the Arameans, and he goes to meet King Tigger. And when he's there, he sees the altar that's at Damascus. Um, and this wasn't necessarily uh, Tigger's altar, but it was the altar of the Arameans. And he is impressed. Uh, it is just sensational. And he thinks to himself, man, our worship back in Judah, that, that pattern that that old fuddy-dud Moses gave to the people and that whole, that whole architecture that King Solomon built, that temple, it is so passe, it is so old, it's so boring. I mean, that just, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. We've got to do something more spectacular. We've got to update the worship of God. So he sends word back to Uriah the priest and tells him that he wants him to reorder uh, the household, the temple of God. Now, what's the problem with that? Who gave the instructions for how his temple was to be built? God. And God is a pretty good architect. Understatement as the creator of the world. And he had very specific reasons why he ordered his temple to be built in a certain way. He gave those instructions to Solomon. They were given because the worship in the temple was a pattern of heavenly things. We learned that in the book of Hebrews. But Ahaz wasn't interested in heavenly things. He wanted what was carnal, what was impressive. 
from a human standpoint. So he sends back word to Uriah the priest and one of the saddest lines in this section of 2 Kings is verse 11, and thus Uriah the priest made it. He did it. The priest kowtowed to the king. It's tragic because just a few chapters earlier, we had learned about a priest named Azariah who with several other priests stood up to King Uzziah when Uzziah wanted to take on, he wasn't content with just being a king, he also wanted to be a priest and he went into the temple ready to offer sacrifices. Azariah the priest and his fellow priests stood up to the king and with honor and reverence, but nonetheless steel in their backbone, they said, King Uzziah, this is, this is not, you are not permitted. Now, where did they get the nerve to say that? What were they doing? They were simply relaying what God had commanded. Well, fast forward, this priest, Uriah, he's not like Azariah. And he gives in. And in our day, this kind of capitulation has happened on a massive scale as the almighty consumer, spiritual consumer, in our day and age has demanded that the church alter its worship. And pastor after pastor after pastor, elders after elders, deacons, committees, and so forth have wholesale capitulated. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, style. I'm talking about taking out the word, less word, less preaching, um, more lights or less lights. We, I had someone I spoke to recently uh, reflecting on the sad changes at one particular church, and she said to me, in their worship service, you can't even see in front of your face. They've dimmed the light so much so that, you know, there's mood and music and so forth. I love, I love music, but I mean, it, it's, it's like a concert of the world. Um, it's appealing not to truth, but to physical, tangible experience. And listen very carefully. I, I, I can't take time to talk more about this. I love this subject. So I'm talking to myself right now and I'm saying few words, few words. Self. <laughs> Don't, um, some of you have been here a lot today. We had a meeting after the Sunday morning, so I'm going to try to move forward here pretty quickly. But we are people of truth of our minds and God made us with bodies. So we do care about the aesthetic. We care about how things look. We care about beauty. We care about tune. We care about art because that's what God made. God, God made all that. He is that. The, the songs we sing have a beauty and a tune and some are more beautiful than others and so forth. But there's order and there's thought and there's, there's instruments and it's fine to have more than one instrument. It's okay. We've had worship wars where we fought about, you know, kinds of instruments. And really that is silly. What we need to care about is, is God being worshipped in the way? Is it reflecting the way that is commanded and set down in scripture? And what's set down in scripture is first what is true of God 
and that it, our worship should reflect his word, that our worship is more than our singing, that our worship includes the command to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture, like Paul said to Timothy, to devote ourselves to the preaching of the word, like Paul said to Timothy. We are to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which means that when the church is worshiping, that the members of the church should be able to hear one another singing to each other. That's not optional. That's black on white scriptural. And what we have done in our day and age, if we, as we have thought, and we, pastors and church leaders have caved in to the pressure of the world and tried to make the church as much like the world as possible. It's very similar to what Ahaz did here. And so Uriah the priest, it's tragic, he gives in. And there's a lot of emphasis here about his just uh, giving in. Oh, God, give us some church members and some pastors with some backbone. And when people clamor for things that are not pleasing to the Lord, with humility but all sincerity say, sorry, no, that is not what the Lord wants. Well, so Ahaz basically dismantles the kind of worship there is in Jerusalem. You see all the details there. It's, it's tragic. He starts rearranging the whole temple that Solomon had built, all the instructions that God had give, given. And also King Ahaz noticed that he is involved now as a priest. And that's what all the pagan kings did. They thought of themselves as the high priest, but God had initially separated the priesthood and the, and the king, uh, office of king in order to really point forward to the uniqueness of Christ who alone ultimately is prophet, priest, and king. But Ahaz, he wanted to be priest. He wanted to uh, make sure that he felt that he was involved in worship. Uh, he, he wanted the worship to be meaningful and relevant to him. Hear that? Does that sound familiar? Um, when people, again, I've said this, but uh, people don't, they mean well, they don't know better, but when they, when they criticize worship based on, well, you know, I didn't really like it. It wasn't really my type. And? So? Irrelevant. If you are in Christ, you were bought with the blood of God's Son, and you were made to be a priest, a worshiper of God, and your particular or my particular whims are irrelevant. The question is, what has God required of us? And if what is being said is true, if what is being sung is true about God, then that is a form that I can fit into and serve with all my heart. The question is not, was it relevant to me? The question is, was the worship of the church relevant to the living God according to his revealed word? And that can look different ways. I do, just as an aside, I want to be careful here. This is maybe an opportunity. Uh, for, for You notice here, we're, we're pretty routine. Um, and, and I, you know, uh, we have, in the morning, we have two hymns. You know, we, we got a little routine. I want to be careful with that, that you see that what we're trying to do with the routine is to make sure that we have the basic elements of biblical worship. But be careful, dear ones. Don't, like, let's say the Lord took me home to glory, which I hope he doesn't yet. But let's say he did, and another pastor came in, uh, a young guy. 
And, and uh, let's say he wanted to do hmm, six songs. And maybe he wanted to do four before you read the psalm. Or, or maybe he said, you know, do we need to really stand during the psalm? Maybe we can just sit during the psalm. Oh, I don't know. We've always done two before or two after. We always stand during the psalm. <laughs> Be careful. All right? It's okay. You can flesh out the biblical commands. And, and don't, we always stand during the psalms. Well, you didn't stand during the scripture reading before the reading of the passage. So be careful. Be careful. Be careful about routine's good. But look at the thought behind the routine. And don't worship the routine, but use the routine as a means to worship the one and true living God. Okay? So just a little warning there. And uh, I'm a little anxious about that because I, I am just routine and uh, maybe we'll change things a little bit. But the important thing is worship that God has commanded. Well, so verse 16, Uriah the priest did all according, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And it was tragic. The various, uh, and I know there's probably some variation here uh, between our versions because there is uh, some question of the interpretation of the Hebrew here, so that allows for some of the variation. But the bottom line is Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and took down the laver. In other words, he butchered the beautiful uh, uh, structures that God had commanded. And really, the cutting of those various parts were a picture of, of butchered worship, a butchered theology, a marred and corrupt worship. And notice that his motive, verse 18, there's question as to what the king of Assyria has to do with this, but Ahaz was doing what he was doing, not only for himself, but in some gross way, he was modifying the worship of the one true living God somehow to somehow more please the king of Assyria, to please Tigger. I, I, I say this, this might shock some of you. Maybe, maybe, probably not. I would pray, I pray sincerely that if this church should stray from the word of God and the gospel, God forbid, but may God shut it down. Like cause the church to burn, I don't know, go bankrupt, all the people to get sick and die, then limp on in gross apostasy. Because God is glorious. He's not worthy of the butchered, modified worship that's being offered up to him in so many places today. He is to have all our heart and all our obedience. Well, the rest of the Acts of Ahaz, they're written in Chronicles. You can read about it if you want. But this was uh, another kind of sad chapter. But take heart. There's some hope around the corner. Because after Ahaz is Hezekiah, and by the mercy of God, we're going to find that God uses Hezekiah to give the people of Judah a little respite and to give God glory. And uh, we're going to see what God does with Tigger and the Assyrians. It's going to be good. Stay tuned. Let's pray.